Hello and welcome to episode number 18 of Telling the Unknown uh, on this wonderful weekend of Juneteenth, uh, celebrating the uh, freedom of African Americans. Of course, we've been talking about the military in the past. We uh, talked a little bit about uh, African Americans and different aspects of life. And uh, now let's go to uh, one of the bigger and uh, more, I guess you could say, uh, high points of uh, African American life. In the United States, uh, freedom, uh, dating back to uh, what the end of the Civil War, 1865 was that was that the end date. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course. But uh, my guest, as always, uh, the Dr. Roosevelt Rick Wright, and uh, I am your host, Reuben Wright. Of course, our guest has the knowledge, the insight, and of course, the stories to be able to tell us about this wonderful topic. So, without further ado, I'm going to hand it right over to him so we can get into this wonderful episode on this Juneteenth uh, weekend. Well, Ruben, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of Juneteenth here in Syracuse, New York, this weekend. And, of course, we just left the annual flag-raising ceremonies of the African-American freedom flag flying in front of City Hall here in Syracuse, New York. And, of course, the mayor issued a proclamation, Mayor Ben Walsh. And, of course, uh, all of the dignitaries and all at the atrium right next to City Hall, downtown Syracuse, to officially kick off June 10, 2019, here in the city of Syracuse. But in order to set the tone for this incredible day of liberation, Emancipation Day, and now, of course, called Juneteenth, and we'll get into why it's called Juneteenth, but the official day is 19 June. 1865, and that was the date in which, after that most horrific conflict called the American Civil War that had taken place since 1861, when the uh, midshipmen, not the midshipmen, but the cadets of the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, fired on Fort Sumter, starting the American Civil War. And of course, the key question on the table was the war against between the North and the South. And, of course, the key question on the table, and maybe some revisionist historians try to give another reason, but the reason and the whole incredible conflict was on the question of slavery here in the United States of America. Because in uh, 1620, uh, roughly 1619, over 400 years ago, this year, on the shores of Jamestown, the Jamestown River in Virginia, The first 20 African-Americans were brought to America only to find slavery and servitude here in this country. And, of course, from those 20, the ranks grew, the Middle Passage bringing African-Americans in from Africa to great ports like New Orleans, Jacksonville, Florida, St. Augustine, Charleston, South Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia, Annapolis, even New York City. Because slavery, of course, at one time was legal in the state of New York in the early 17th century. But, of course, the bottom line is that African Americans were brought here as slaves to America and found the worst indignation, families torn apart, working for free. And, of course, we find the great plantations of the South, and one product in particular was cotton, cotton grown throughout the South. And, of course, the cotton that was grown throughout the South was sent to the mills of England to produce clothing and everything that needed cotton. And, of course, this was an incredible trade with the United States. But one thing, the African Americans provided free labor. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And roughly from the period of the 17th century, 
the entire 18th century, just about up until 1865, African Americans were enslaved. So we have the question of slavery on the table. The Dred Scott decision was on the table, which said that African Americans were second-class citizens before the American Civil War. And then, of course, the whole Underground Railroad movement became important to the history of America because African Americans were then, or have found, a Underground Railroad, which is really a series of way stations and churches and abolitionists to help African Americans escape from the South to the North and, of course, to try to cross over into Canada and freedom. Syracuse, New York, we'd like to concentrate our efforts here today on Syracuse, and that Syracuse was really the home of the abolitionist movement. We would like to mention today Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Bishop Jermaine Wesley Logan, Mr. Jarrett Smith, a multi-millionaire abolitionist, also the Reverend Samuel May, and all who were here in the city of Syracuse, New York. It is the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church and Bishop Jermaine Wesley Logan, who was the 13th bishop of the AME Zion Church, who came here in the 18th century and, of course, set up way stations. And a way station was basically a part of the Underground Railroad where African Americans escaping from North Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, those incredible states where slavery was legal, and of course, escaping from those uh, plantations. We know the great story of uh, Frederick Douglass, who was based in Rochester, New York, great abolitionist movement that he basically handled the incredible leadership of. And of course, Harriet Tubman, also, who set up and eventually settled in Auburn, New York, all pieces of the Syracuse, New York Underground Railroad process. And of course, Bishop Jermaine Wesley Logan. It is estimated that Bishop Logan basically helped over 3,000 African American slaves who were trying to get to Canada and freedom. Well, the question gets tougher and tougher with the Compromise of 1850. And where in the Compromise of 1850, Congress, because what was happening, America was expanding from to new territories, California, uh, the West was being explored and opened up. And of course, the question on the table, would the new territories of the West be brought in as slave states or free states? And of course, the Southern lobby in Congress was a very powerful lobby at that time in the early development of the United States. And therefore, a major argument occurred in the Congress of the early 1850s. And of course, as the decision was made, a compromise called the Compromise of 1850 was laid on the table. And this compromise basically said that the plantation owners of the South could come north and recapture their escape slaves and bring them back to bondage and slavery. This particular compromise of 1850, which is roughly 10 years into the Civil War, absolutely lit it's like throwing gasoline on the fire here in the United States. And much debate was going on. And, of course, here in Syracuse, one of the great rescues called the Jerry Rescue happened here in Syracuse, where a young brother by the name of William Henry, who came here as a blacksmith, he had escaped from uh, Missouri and through North Carolina, 
came to Syracuse and, of course, uh, established residence here, became a very outstanding citizen, a great citizen of Syracuse. But then, of course, as he became prosperous, his master or slave owners down in south the Reynolds family in Missouri heard he was doing well. So, of course, with the Compromise of 1850 being on the table, making it legal for the plantation owners to basically have the federal marshals to go north and recapture their property, as they would say, and bring it back home to the south. Well, the federal marshals showed up here in Syracuse in October of 1951. In fact, October 1st, 1951. And previous Daniel Webster, who at that time was the Secretary of State in the United States of America, had come here doing a convention of abolitionists here in Syracuse in defiance, indicating to the abolitionists and people in support of the Underground Railroad and the freed uh, slaves that they were trying to get into freedom, that they were basically breaking the law and they must abide by the Compromise of 1850. That really incensed the residents of Syracuse, like Jared Smith, Reverend Samuel May, Bishop Jermaine Wesley Logan. And, of course, um, they broke uh, Jerry out of jail here in Syracuse, a jail that was located right next to the Erie Canal, and, of course, spirited him out of the city of Syracuse to Canada and freedom. Of course, Bishop Logan and others who had participated in this had to actually leave town, even Bishop Logan himself. But then he found his way back in. Well, this story gets tougher and tougher, and finally, with the election of President Abraham Lincoln, this was the final blow for the South, and of course they hated President Lincoln, and of course he won the presidency in what was then the Electoral College. And once he was elected President of the United States, all of the Southern states got together and basically um, dissolved themselves from the Union of the United States of America and developed the Confederate States of America, which were states like uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, South Carolina, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida. Charleston, South Carolina, shots are fired on Fort Sumter, and the Civil War starts. The Civil War is a bloody battle. In fact, many people thought the American Civil War, working on the question of slavery, would last for a couple of weeks. No, it lasted, and it was bloody. We have great battles like Antietam, Shiloh, and, of course, the greatest battle of all, Gettysburg. And, of course, President Lincoln was suffering through the war. And, of course, after Antietam, a battle which we basically won in a draw, President Lincoln was looking for some kind of a way to free the African-American slaves. And in the year 1862, he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. And then on New Year's Eve of 1862, what is now called in the African-American community the Night of Watch, the Watch Night Services, which are held in churches to this very day. Because on the 1st of January, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation, as uh, written and produced by President Abraham Lincoln, indicated that all of the African-American slaves who were in the Confederacy were now free. And, of course, out of that, uh, it allowed and opened up the ranks for African-Americans to become soldiers, like the 54th uh, Massachusetts Volunteers, all African-American combat units and all. And, of course, we go into the war finally ending. And, of course, the great battles between General Robert E. Lee of the Confederate Army 
and of course General Ulysses Grant of the American Union Army and the American Union Army wins. Of course, there was Sherman's great march through uh, the South, which he basically, his march through Georgia, up through uh, South Carolina into North Carolina, basically put the finishing, finishing blows on the Civil War. Now, in this era of the 18th century, the big method of communications was telegraph, Morris Code. There was no radio yet, no television, no Facebook, no cell phones. And of course, African Americans uh, didn't really get the message. And, of course, the war ended, and, of course, with the war's end, Union troops started going into the South to uh, basically take over, the, you know, the captivity of these southern states. In the state of Texas, and Texas, of course, a little bit further out, uh, and, of course, there's the Gulf of Mexico, where General Gordon Granger came ashore at Texas, uh, with the Union Navy leading and getting him there on those shores, and then the Union Army came in to basically take over uh, Galveston, Texas. And Texas had a hundreds of thousands of African-American slaves were brought to Texas because for a long time, Texas was not affected by the Emancipation Proclamation. So African-Americans were brought there to be remain and kept in bondage. Well, here's the story. Reuben, can you imagine a group of people who have been free since 1863? Two years later, they did not get the word, did not get the message that they were free. And on this day of African Americans who had been enslaved, hungry, broke, downtrodden, poor, the war had ravished the South, and there they were in Galveston, Texas, trying to maintain. And then they could see the Union ships showing up in the Gulf of Mexico, and then, of course, off those ships came Union troops marching into Galveston. Well, immediately, General Gordon Granger, who was the commanding general of the Union Army at that time in that area of the jurisdiction of Texas, got there, and he went to a villa. In fact, the villa was a beautiful, uh, you know, those old plantation-looking houses with the Spanish ancestry and the balcony and all and the villa was called the Aston Villa, and on the front balcony, General Order Number Three was read on June 19, 1865. And this particular villa indicated this: the people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection here to forever existing between them becomes that between employee and hired labor, the freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They all inform that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that it will not be supported in idleness either, there or elsewhere. This basically was the announcement content, General Order Number 3, from the balcony of the Aston Villa by General Gordon Granger of the Union Army. And of course, basically, the message was to all of the African Americans that they were free. We also got to realize that this section of Texas was not really a battlefield. And of course, um, 
the it was also isolated, you know, and of course Telegraph and the message hadn't gotten there, and planters and other slaveholders had migrated into Texas from eastern states to escape the fighting. So Texas was not like a big battleground like we had in Richmond and Memphis, Tennessee, and Atlanta, and Charleston, and Norfolk, Virginia, where the battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack occurred in Thimble Shoals Channel of the Elizabeth River. But also, in the Houston area and uh, Galveston area, they said there'd be an estimation of at least a quarter of a million uh, African Americans were living in Texas at this time who did not get the message. So, June 19th is the great day of emancipation, and of course, the freedom for African Americans. Now here in the city of Syracuse, this weekend, we will be celebrating uh, Juneteenth and the 30th anniversary of Juneteenth. This is a milestone one because we are going to salute the visionaries, the people who were really the founders of Juneteenth here in the city of Syracuse. When I first came uh, to Syracuse as a graduate student at Syracuse University in the doctoral program, because we were taught Juneteenth, you know, in our schools back home in North Carolina, and, of course, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, home for dad here. Schools like P.W. Moore High School and H.L. Trigg School, which are all African-American educational institutions. We had to learn the African-American national anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, that was developed by Dr. James Weldon Johnson. And, of course, our history was told to us. And, of course, Juneteenth normally happened in the summertime. But usually when we ended up uh, classes, which the early part of June for summer vacations, our teachers always told of us that June was a month of freedom for our ancestors because this is when they got the word that they were free down in Texas, which is really the last you know, pocket of African-Americans who had not gotten the message that they were free from President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Now, when I came to Syracuse, I would look around and say, you know, Juneteenth would come up. And at that time, I'm sure our people in the city of Syracuse knew about Juneteenth, but it was no real big celebration. And I always used to walk around the campus, in fact, my first year, early years here at Syracuse, where is Juneteenth? Then when I came back to Syracuse in 1975 as a professor at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications, I also brought it up then and some of my other friends, hey man, it's Juneteenth time. Well, this was really when um, I had a level of uh, wondering, uh, my God, what's going on? But it was solved by when I got my commission in the United States Navy, and I was assigned to the Naval Recruiting District, uh, Buffalo, at Recruiting Area 1 of the Naval Recruiting Command as a Naval Liaison Officer at Syracuse University. I just got my commission, and it was in 1981 when I got my commission, February. But in June of 1981, I got a phone call from uh, Captain uh, Steve McGanka, who was the commanding officer of Commodore Recruiting Area 1, and Commander Mike uh, Edwards, who was the uh, then eventually EXO, but commanding officer of NRD Buffalo, called me on the phone and said, Commander Wright. I said, yes, Skipper. He said, look, uh, grab one of our G cars. It's one of our government cars. Got the uniform, and uh, you got orders cut. I want you over here in Buffalo to be in the Juneteenth Parade. And I said on my phone, and I said to myself, oh, my God, Juneteenth, a skipper. He said, yeah, a big celebration for Juneteenth in Buffalo. And, of course, you know, I haven't come to Syracuse. I never really ventured out to Buffalo or Rochester. I was so busy in school and working in radio and stuff here in, in uh, Syracuse. So I jumped in the car down the New York Thruway, and I go to Buffalo. This is uh, the Juneteenth celebration in Buffalo, New York. 
And I had to report into the federal building where the Naval Recruiting Command headquarters was. And we assembled there. And, of course, we went over to Ferry Street. And, of course, at the beginning of Ferry Street, uh, that took it all the way down to Jefferson, all the way down to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Park. And I think we're talking about a good two-and-a-half-mile uh, route. And we uh, got all the uh, members of the Naval Recruiting Command, all the guys in uniform, got our flags and everything, our color guard. We also had some Navy vans following us, you know, for the recruiting effort, visibility and all. And we march, uh, kicking off at Ferry Street, never forget going to St. Luke AME Zion Church, and we get to Jefferson Street, made that turn. The streets were packed. I'm telling you, I mean, it was packed. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. And they had at least maybe... I think maybe 10 or 12 bands, floats and all, celebrating Juneteenth, Emancipation Day, freedom of the African-American slaves. And then, of course, going down Jefferson Street, on both sides of the street are restaurants and barbershops, nightclubs. And at the end, it goes into Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Park, where there were nothing but vendors all set up. And, of course, they had bands playing, you know, R&B bands playing, people singing, dancing. And the food was absolutely magnificent. But at that time, I said, wow, Juneteenth is alive and well, Western New York. Well, I came back into Syracuse, and of course, over the years, uh, Mr. Jesse Dowdell of the Southwest Community Center, and also my dear fraternity brother, George Kilpatrick, uh, the super king of all media, and a number of other incredible people um, that I, well, I'm going to start naming a lot of names, I'm going to miss some names, but I love all of you out there, and of course, they will be celebrated tonight, tonight on this, the 14th of June, in the ancestral dinner that yours truly will be the master ceremony to Miss Cora Anita Thomas. Cora is a big uh, administrator at Syracuse University with our radio station at WAER and also a big civics worker and also a gospel superstar in gospel music with iHeartMedia and Power 620 Radio is putting this program on tonight. The dinner is sold out. So it should be a real nice event. We also will be dressed in our ancestral uh, garb. And uh, Ruben, you saved me on this one, big guy. I don't know if you remember you had Faith Heritage and you had to get some African garb for a display you had up. Mm -hmm. And Dad bought one also that day. I'm going to use that tonight. I haven't had it on since those days, man. I think I can still get in it. (laughs) But I'll be using dressing it in our ancestral garb of giving an African uh, flavor, you know, to the event tonight. So that will be the Ancestral Dinner tonight, uh, awards and basically re- recognizing the founders of Juneteenth here in Syracuse, New York, over 30-some years ago. Our first Juneteenth celebrations, though, here in Syracuse were all held on South Avenue, which was really our first location, was the Southwest Community Center, which is a center of uh, African-American activities for the South Side. And then, of course, it was basically just at the Southwest Community Center, and food and stuff was around the grounds of the Southwest Community Center. But as time grew on, they got bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, pretty much South Avenue from uh, Tallman Street, pretty much all the way down to Kurt Park, the whole street was blocked off. And houses, people were just having fun. There were a lot of businesses along the way. There was like the B&B Lounge was there, restaurants, the Southwest Community Center. And then, of course, vendors would set up there, there, you know, where along South Avenue. And then, of course, had a big, you know, main stage where different groups and stuff would come up. And we had people to just speak about Juneteenth and its history. 
But downtown, the South Ave locations became too congested and too crowded. And of course, then we realized something that the greatest, one of the greatest uh, African-American pieces of real estate in America was right here in Syracuse in downtown Clinton Square. Because a number of years ago, great community groups all got together and we commissioned a young lady to put up a stature. In fact, the late Chester Whiteside, who was one of uh, Syracuse's first broadcasters, and of course he became a firefighter one of our first African-American firefighters here in the Syracuse. Before he died, I never forget one day he came over the federal building and he was talking about the Jerry Rescue. And he said, Roosevelt, man, one of the things I got to do before I die, we have got to put up something to commemorate Jerry, the young man who was rescued by the city of Syracuse's abolitionist movement, broken out of jail right here on this spot by the Erie Canal. So through the incredible vision of the late Mr. Chester Whiteside, uh, we all got together and various groups and we put up and a sculpture was, um, you know, what you call a request for proposals or a request to have a sculpture done. And a design was done. And of course, the sculpture was done and it sits there at historic Clinton Square, downtown Syracuse, where you can actually see Jerry in chains and Bishop Jermaine Wesley Logan on one side and the Reverend Samuel May on the other side, breaking him out of jail. And of course, with that being the historic spot of the Jerry Rescue, we decided to move Juneteenth to its real historical ancestry location, and that is Clinton Square, downtown Syracuse, the home of the Jerry Rescue, and also where all of the big abolitionist conferences and meetings were held back in the 18th century. So we've moved it there, and it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and tomorrow we will have the Victory Parade that will kick off around 12 noon, or maybe 11 o'clock, from the Southwest Community Center, and then everybody will march from there over to South Salina Street down downtown Syracuse to end at historic Clinton Square, where we have sold out tomorrow all the sites for all the vendors with food and wear and African garb to sell. And also a lot of community organizations will be there, you know, for health care, education, and all kinds of uh, materials will be handed out to the community. And, of course, throughout the day we will have uh, first segment of the um, downtown Clinton Square program of Juneteenth tomorrow will be gospel uh, groups from pretty much 12 to 4 o'clock. And then at 4 o'clock, um, Bobby Green, who's the father-in-law of Floyd Little, football star, he has a band called Bobby Green's A Cut Above. We'll kick off at 4 o'clock. Also, we'll be broadcasting the event over Power 620 WHEN AM and FM 1069 HD2, which is WSYR FM, from roughly uh, 12 o'clock till 4 o'clock. And at 4 o'clock, uh, yours truly, your dad, will take the stage as a master of ceremonies to take us through the rest of the afternoon. And then tomorrow night, we have a major uh, R&B recording artist, by the name of Mr. Keith Washington. And Keith is from Detroit, Michigan. And back around 1991-92, he won a Grammy. He's appeared on television shows, soap operas like General Hospital. He's also been in movies. And Keith had a big hit called Kissing You. And he will be our headliner tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. So that's the wear for tomorrow, all day long, Juneteenth uh, celebrations here in Syracuse, New York, Juneteenth 2019. And then on Sunday, we'll have Gospel Sunday, where we'll basically move things back down to South Avenue and the Jubilee Park on South Avenue for uh, Gospel 
Sunday and the basically uh, Freedom Juneteenth 2019 at Jubilee Park in uh, Syracuse, downtown Syracuse, tomorrow on Sunday. So that will be the Juneteenth activities. Well, Juneteenth, Reuben, basically again, the date in which African Americans received the word that they were free at that great state and that great location of Galveston, Texas, and they were pretty much the last group of African Americans to find out that they had already been freed two years earlier with the Emancipation Proclamation at the beginning of 1863. Well, Ruben, uh, sort of a captivation this afternoon on your podcast of Juneteenth. And, of course, we'll be celebrating Juneteenth not just here in Syracuse, but all over the United States of America. And, of course, great hymns like Sweet Low, Sweet Chariot, Lift Every Voice and Sing. And, of course, a great song, Steal Away, Steal Away Jesus. These were code songs. That is Sweet Low, Sweet Chariot, Waiting for to Carry Me Home. And, of course, uh, Steal Away, Steal Away to Jesus were songs written by African-American slaves to be sung on plantations. And basically, they were code songs indicating it's time to get on board the Underground Railroad and freedom and try to head north. But then eventually, the American Civil War is fought. When the war is over, the question of slavery, 13th Amendment is passed. And, of course, the, the Emancipation Proclamation. And then, of course, the war ends. And the word is already out in 1863, but brothers and sisters, maybe a quarter of a million in Texas had not gotten the word until General Gordon Granger came ashore on the 19th of June, 1865, Texas. Freedom for the African-American ancestry in the United States of America. So, Reverend, I think we'll end it at that in your podcast today. And uh, thank you again for letting me appear on your weekly podcast, and I hope this is some information that can be of interest to our listening audience. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for your continued knowledge, and especially on this Juneteenth uh, weekend, uh, providing us with the, uh, the origins of the actual uh, Juneteenth, as well as the origins of the story. Um, and, and thank you so much for your contributions. Uh, as always, catch us on Fridays uh, to, to hear about African Americans in all works of life. Uh, in, in this case, uh, really where I guess you could say it almost began, the, uh, the freedom and the, uh, the emancipation, essentially, of uh, African Americans to be able to go on and do so many of the, uh, the great things that uh, they, have, they have gone to do. So thank you for joining us. Uh, my guest, uh, the Dr. Roosevelt Rick Wright Jr., and uh, I've been your host, uh, Ruben Wright. And uh, again, join us next Friday for your continued uh, knowledge and continued uh, understanding and, and intelligence uh, gaining of uh, African Americans in all works of life. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Freedom is in the air as the people were shouting in Galveston, Texas on the 19th of June, 1865.